Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Chris Whittingham is on a well-deserved vacation, but we do have a fantastic interview guest today, Stu Holden, Fox Sports. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. The best way to support me and my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Now, here's my interview with Stu Holden. Our guest now is one of the leading broadcasters in American soccer. Stu Holden is an analyst for Fox Sports, which is broadcasting the huge U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier against Panama on March 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern on FS1. He's with me and a bunch of other people in Miami Beach this week for the Soccer X Conference. Stu, it's the first time I've seen you in person since before the pandemic. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, that's crazy to think about, right? Like two years feels like a long time in in, in this world. And you, you, you and I, before we came on here, we were talking about 2010 and you said 12 years. And I was thinking, man, has it been that long since I was actually playing meaningful soccer games? And the sad part is it is. <laughs> this is a sign we are getting older, my friend. Know, but we're, we're doing it together at least. I know. <laughs> first off, how are you? I know you've been working a ton with a lot of things going on, but I also know you had a pretty major surgery recently. Yeah, so I had a partial knee replacement. Uh, half of my knee is now metal. I'm 36 years old. It's kind of a, a tough pill to swallow, to be honest. But this goes back to the original injury I picked up against Man United, Johnny Evans. So when he tackled me without you know, boring your podcast listeners to death here, um, I, I think people are pretty aware of my injury history and the stuff that came subsequently with ACL tears. But all of that actually comes back to this original injury. And it was I was told at the time by a surgeon this was a one in a million type injury. And I said, I'm glad I'm the one in this case, which is not good, a very bad luck. But a chunk of my knee was actually fractured off in that time and it was pinned to fix. Then the pin had messed up the cartilage, and in result, I'd had a microfracture to try and basically fix that part of my knee, which the cartilage. And it, as as it has, we talked about 2010. That was 2011. That's 11 years ago. It is all completely gone. And I was living for the last year and a half, two years, just limping around, coworkers, not uh, not happy with what I could do uh, activity-wise. Couldn't catch my 20-month-old son who would run away from me, and got to a point like, hey. I need to do something about this. And I had what they call a quality of life procedure. I had a, a pretty major surgery. It wasn't a decision that actually came very easily for me because I was like, hey, I'm probably gonna have to have this replaced in 20 years. And I'm seven weeks after the surgery and I feel great. Like the, le the least amount of pain I've had in 10 years. I'm like strong, I'm on the bike, I'm almost running again, so uh, yeah. Uh, I feel good. I feel good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that from a quality of life perspective because yeah. I, I don't know if all of us were aware of how much pain that was still causing you. Yeah. I mean, legitimately, I every couple of steps I would feel sharp pains that just hit me. And I always used to say this. I used to say when I was coming back from injuries, I said, I don't care what happens. I'm going to push this until I can't push it anymore. I know that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and I'm going to give it everything from my body, from my heart, from my mind. And I said, whatever surgeries they have in the future, it's going to fix it. I didn't think it was going to hurt as much as it did uh, this last you know, six weeks. That was the most pain after a surgery. And 
you know, I wouldn't change it. I, I wouldn't change it. I got to live out my dream. Um, I suffered, you know, from a body perspective, and I don't know what the next 30, 40 years are going to hold for me, but I'm in the moment, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in science and technology, and I, if I have a robotic leg in the next six years, like, bring it on. <laughs> You'll be in Orlando broadcasting this big World Cup qualifier against Panama on March 27th. For you, what are the biggest storylines for the U.S. heading into these games against Mexico, Panama, and Costa Rica? One of, one of the biggest ones is slightly unexpected. It's in the goalkeeper position. And granted, I know now, you know, you and I are talking here and this could potentially change, but the, Zach Steffen is back in training, which is good. Ethan Horvath is finally playing for Nottingham Forest. Matt Turner is still out, but like the goalkeeper is a position that I don't know, who's our starter right now? And, and is it Turner? Is it Stefan? Stefan can't seem to stay healthy. Matt Turner is going to go to Arsenal. Is he going to play? And so I'm already looking forward of like, well, you want a guy that's going to be playing consistently heading into a World Cup, I think, at that position. Right. The Weston McKinney one is a big one. Um, he's out. Who's going to fill that void? You get Gio Reyna back, we think, we hope. And really for this team, I, I, this is... I've been saying this for two years and I've been so impressed and I didn't anticipate the way in which this young group would take over the team. I, th I thought you'd still have some other guys in the mix and Greg has trusted these guys and they've handled the pressure so well, but like now is real pressure. Like when you're going to Mexico in Azteca, I know it's not been the fortress it has been in the previous cycles, but this is a big game for, for these players to, to really We've had the better of Mexico, but not in Mexico. And I feel like this could almost become a window and, a, and another continuation of this coming of age of these young players and taking responsibility. Pulisic's coming in in the best form. We've seen him come into a U.S. camp. Like, can he really be the guy now? And, and from four years ago, he had the goal in the game against Panama in Orlando, and then they went down and they lost. I'm not putting any of that on Pulisic, but, like, can he now – have that redemption story of like, I led this team back to the World Cup where we need to be, and I think they'll get it done. I, I think they'll be in Qatar. Yeah, I do too. I, it's, it may not be easy. You know, you're looking at, if they want to control their own destiny, probably at least one point in Mexico, three points home against Panama will probably get it done. But, yeah. Uh, but, but you're right, the, the but and the hesitation and the pause we is live what we all it. feel now because <laughs> we've been there. And I, I've been talking to so many people here and everybody's like, we're, we're gonna make it, right? Like, there's, there's still this pause and this hesitation because we've seen it go so wrong. And I would hate to be in a position where this team has to go down to Costa Rica to get anything to, to win. Historically, tells us that too. Uh, but I know this isn't the same Costa Rica. If they could qualify live on Fox Sports in, uh, in Orlando, we would love that. <laughs> we would celebrate it massively. But also, like, selfishly, putting that part aside, like, right. I just don't want to go through the stress as a fan. Like, we want them to qualify. We all do. Yeah, there's PTSD there, and it's yeah. going to be there until the U.S. qualifies. I mean, if the U.S. can qualify for this World Cup, what do you see that might be changed or added by November? I don't think a lot. I think you're going to see a couple players still emerge. It happens every single cycle. There's always a name that's, whether it's Hercules Gomez and Edson Buttle. I remember for our 2010 World Cup because those guys weren't in the picture. And Herc, I think at the time, was scoring every other game down in Mexico. And then he's on the World Cup team. And he was starting and playing in games and playing meaningful minutes. And I look to Major League Soccer where I think you'll probably find a player like that, a guy that's just red-hot form, 
Is it you know a guy like Kate Cowell, perhaps? Um, you look at some of these young players that are going to get opportunities, get minutes, and really it is about form and peaking at the right time. And you're going to be coming off the back of all these seasons ending at the same time. So everybody's going to be in the same same type of fitness. But from a coaching perspective, it'll be very similar. It's going to be a big challenge for Greg Berhalter, I think, because of the fact that like the seasons are going to end and then the World Cup's going to start 10 days later. You're not going to have much time to train, to have a friendly even. That might even be who knows what the world looks like at that point. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, I don't, I don't see many big changes from the team, but like, they've got to find a way to play some games that mean something so you're heading into that tournament with like a real sense of togetherness. And the fact of the matter is, due to COVID mainly, but also due to like the Nations League happening with UEFA, and all the South American qualifiers. The U.S. under Burhalter hasn't played that many mm -hmm. top teams, even in friendlies. Yeah. And I actually see this conversation a lot. I'm, I'm glad you brought it. It's, it's an important one because that's no fault of U.S. soccer or no. Greg Burhalter and the padding of the stats against the Jamaicas and the Trinidads and like these were the only teams you could actually play because to your point the calendar has changed a lot. The Nations League teams in in Europe are all playing games that are meet are. are qualifiers and they mean something and so the US does that's a really big point I think of emphasis of how can you find games that replicate the cadence or the travel of like what you're potentially going to see in a World Cup hopefully they'll get some friendlies yeah. this summer against some top competition we'll have to wait and see what comes out on that um, I can't believe it's been four years, but you were kind enough to do a podcast interview with me, I think our last one actually, <laughs> yeah. in my hotel room the night before you broadcast the World Cup final in 2018. What did getting the opportunity to call a World Cup final mean for your career? I've had some incredible opportunities at, at Fox Sports and I, I came here knowing that I needed to, to learn, I needed to get better, and thankfully I've had people that have believed in me, and to have that type of opportunity with a guy like John Strong, who I'd been calling games with for a couple years in the lead up to that point, but you're right, I mean, I, I remember you and I sitting there the night before, and you're like, are you available? And I said, yeah, like, I just wanted to do as many normal things as possible, and because it was, it was a big moment for me, I felt like in my broadcasting career, and one that I almost felt surreal to be a part of. And I, I did take a moment after that where the game's about to start, the teams are walking out, they're doing the anthems on the field, and I took my headset off and I just kind of sat there for a moment and soaked up the atmosphere and, and allowed myself to enjoy it. And then it was game time. And then after the game ended, people that uh, follow me on social might not like to hear this part, but I didn't want anything to distort my experience in that moment because it really was a, a career moment and I didn't check social media, I didn't get on, I didn't want to look for anything. I just wanted to kind of live in, in that experience and it was one for me I think that I've called the World Cup final. Like it's on, on American broadcast television and 17 million people that day heard my voice and it's really cool to think about that, you know, I was given that opportunity, people trusted me with that, and I felt like I, I did a good job. But it's also one that as I continue to grow, I watched it back actually not so long ago, and there's things I think I would I would do better or say differently, and, and hopefully I can take that experience with me through to uh, Qatar at the end of this year and, and, you know, take now my broadcasting to that next level. Because that was gonna be my next question is, what kinds of things can you learn from your experience of broadcasting the 2018 World Cup that will help you when presumably you're part of the World Cup broadcast later this year? 
Well, the, the main thing I'll have going for me is that I won't be traveling on uh, 9,000 uh, flights in and around uh, Russia and doing Russian red eyes at 4 a.m. in the morning and then calling a game 8 p.m. that night. Everything is going to be drivable, so that's a major bonus from a prep standpoint, from an ability to do some studio stuff. And I, I think what I learned in, in that tournament was that each game itself is like a big, big game. And to like Swedish fans and German fans, that game we did in Sochi and Germany scored the late goal to, to equalize against the Swedish team of like, how do you prepare for, for each game individually and not get caught in storylines, but allow the game to be the game. I, I think that's the biggest thing I've learned as, as a broadcaster in big, big tournaments. In MLS, we do a lot of storytelling. We try to build stars. We want people to care about the players on the field. In World Cups, these guys are stars. Every player, every person watching at home knows every player. They know Ronaldo. They know Messi. They know their guys from, from Sweden and Germany. So there's some really cool and interesting stories. But, like, it's about the game. And it's, it's how can you add to that without taking away from it. You never want to become the show. You want the show to be the action on the field and listening back to certain games and moments of times to come in as a broadcaster and times to just let the atmosphere soak in and the directors because we're not in charge of the pictures I, I don't know how many people you know that listen to this are aware of that like it's a world feed every broadcaster gets the same feed so you start to learn what you're probably going to see next but like the A crew or B crew of, of the world feed will cut to a random fan as you're breaking down a play and then you have to pivot and talk about what's on the picture so like I learned all that in doing, you know, big tournaments and that like it's a very high quality. You get so many cameras, you get so many looks, but like you have to be able to react to what's on the picture because that's what people are seeing at home. I always thought one of the biggest challenges in that situation would be if they show a dignitary from some country <laughs> yeah. in the stands and it's not like a uh, like France or it or it's like Iran or yeah. something. That's when John and I look at each other and, and like thankfully John is an encyclopedia of like the most useless facts. Sorry, John. Also very useful facts. He's the stat man. Like and it's in his brain. I look at him sometimes when he's speaking and I'm thinking, where's that coming from? Is he reading this? And it's like just rattle off in like this back chamber of his brain and yeah, he'll like a dignitary of pop. Like we were doing Copa America and they kept showing Alejandro Dominguez, the, mm. the president of Comnibal. And it was like almost like he was paid by the appearance. But every time John's like, <laughs> and there's Alejandro Dominguez and there's his, you know, right hand man. And I just like am quiet in those moments because you don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, so I have been told that you put in some real work over the years to get your voice stronger. And I'm wondering what sort of stuff have you done oh, for that? That's, uh, that's a that def hi Shaw Brown, um, <laughs> who is a producer. It's very inside TV. Shaw is one of the guys who got me into TV. You and I know him very well. Yeah, like I, John actually said this to me the other day too. John Strong. We watched back or like highlights. We were joking over dinner about the first game we ever called together, and it was the first game I'd ever done on TV. It was San Jose against Chicago on a Thursday night in MLS, and I sound like a different person and. I don't have a naturally deep, like commanding voice, like you know, someone like John does or Mark Followell. I Mark like looks at you and he's like Mr. Ron Burgundy with this <laughs> broadcaster voice, and I don't have that. And I listen to the way that I say things, and back then, and and worked really a lot on on tone and delivery, and like I took a couple of voice lessons on how to speak more from your diaphragm and how to project. But also like tone, I've actually listened to podcasts I've done and I think I'm talking too fast. I'm not taking pauses. I'm not, you know, enunciating in a way that I think captures people's attention. And that's something I've, I've worked a lot on because when you're calling a game, 
especially because I'm very animated. I use my hands a lot. So in studio, I think that works because I'm a high energy guy. But like when you're talking, people don't see your your body language. They can't they can't feel that emotion, and you have to be able to project that through your voice. And I, I remember Shaw was one of the first ones that told me. He's like, "Hey, when you speak, like." let me believe that you believe what you're saying and can you say it in a way that is commanding and you might be wrong but it's your opinion so be strong with your opinion and don't tail off because then the viewer kind of feels like mm, he's not convinced that actually happened for that reason and that's a lot of of what I worked on especially was like in big moments how can you come in with an, a, the type of voice that can match that and it's one thing David Neal our, our executive producer always says is like the, these things, you know, you don't know when they're going to happen, but how can you add from a analysis standpoint, but also from a TV perspective to, to match that moment and give it what it deserves? Because you've seen one of the greatest things happen. And like, can your voice now be associated with that moment in the right way, but not trying to say it in like these crazy cla uh, cliche catchphrases that just come off cheesy. So it's, it's like things I think about a lot on, and as, as I'm going into games, but then you don't know, like Zlatan, I remember that moment, and John's like, oh, come on! Right. I was like, well, what do I say now? I think I said, like, <laughs> LAFC have been Zlatan, which was clearly something I thought about, and I think it worked. You know, it was maybe, good. Maybe it didn't. I remember it. <laughs> but I mean, like, I think viewers don't always think about that broadcasters can change over mm -hmm. time, that, you know, you get reps, you get experience, you get growth, and you also work on your craft as you have, which I, it's a little bit, I try to remind myself with athletes I interview that like, just because someone isn't quote, a great interview at age 20, doesn't mean they won't be at 25 or 28, or if they're Taylor Twelman, go on and become an ESPN yeah, broadcaster. Did not like very, media media at all, right? <laughs> right. But like, I watched my interviews as a player and Shaw was like, well, I knew you'd do TV. And I say, really? Like I, I watched the goal I scored in the gold cup and they're interviewing me after. And I came up with like, we got to go back to the drawing board. We need to really work hard. We need to do this. And I was like, that's not a good interview. Like why? I'm not seeing personality. And, and we interview guys all the time now. And I, uh, I just, wish I could speak to all of these guys, whether you want to go into media or not, like from a likability, from a branding standpoint, from even like to your teammates, you can communicate in ways on interviews. And like, we all talk about it. Weston McKinney does a great job of that, right? Like the guy turns up in crutches on a, in a boot in LAFC game. And I was like, that was me 10 years ago. Like I wanted to be around. I wanted to be the face of the team. I wanted to, I don't know. I just felt like it made me a bigger part of, of who I was. And, you know, he's a guy that in 10 years will be taking my job and calling the World Cup final. So. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask you about another part of the job that everyone in your position has to think about at some point, which is how hard is it to criticize players or coaches who might be your friends? I've lost relationships because of it for sure with with former teammates um where guys i think for the most part players understand if you do it in the right way and i feel like whatever i say i, I got this advice from i think it was john harks actually when uh, when i first started doing television was like whatever you say on camera be prepared to say to somebody's face and if you can't say it to their face you're going to deal with the repercussions and you might get treated differently by certain people you're going to lose friendships relationships and you might also get cut out of certain parts of the game and uh, you know i i have i've had teammates that haven't liked the way that i've said something or said something about them part of my job but i try to be fair I genuinely try to i have no hidden agendas when it comes to 
teams or you know galaxy fans think that i hate their team like i don't hate the galaxy i really like the galaxy i want them to be successful but when i call a game i'm, I'm trying to call it down the middle i'm calling what i see and yeah like i i think it is it was difficult for me when i was still one foot in one foot out for sure like when when i first started television and i was then like going into january camp with jurgen's teams and i would see the guys but then the next week i'm doing a game and i'm broadcasting uh the gold cup or something and talking to these same guys i started to sense a bit of like nobody directly said it to my face but you know how you can feel that energy of just like an uneasiness that whose team are you on kind of feel but then once once I retired and I said this is my job now and to do my job the best I have to be able to be all in on that aspect and um, yeah like I said I've, I've lost some friendships but clearly those friendships weren't as strong as I thought they were if that's what is the tipping point and know? if you're not getting at least some of that I don't think you are doing your job you're right you're right because Completely. some of the things that I think we have to say to be interesting or the things that are interesting not to be interesting the things are are interesting are the exactly as you said the the strong opinions um strong analysis sometimes controversial opinions and the that like if you sit on the fence the whole time to me you're not very interesting you probably don't last in this job that long <laughs> the mls season has just started what are the most interesting things going on in the league in your opinion right now i think the the interesting part to me is seeing everybody trying to uh, now with you know the the GAM and TAM era and trying to find ways to really compete. I, I do think that now there's some more pressure within the league to have a team that's competitive on the field. And I think about the Houston Dynamo, perfect example. My former club, uh, MLS Cup champions, irrelevant currently in, in MLS, if we're being honest, and have been for a number of years. I think made the playoffs one out of the last six years. And a, a team that has a new owner now, is investing, is really connecting with alumni, brought Pat Onstad in as a general manager, Hector Herrera they're signing in the summer, which was like a big name. They're buying some young DP players, some TAM players. Like they, they recognize that in order to be relevant in MLS and in Houston, you've got to compete. And I think you're seeing that now uh, around the league. Austin coming in and spending money. Cincinnati not getting it right, but like understanding there's a pressure to their fan base that they have this beautiful stadium and this rabid fan base, but like they have to have a good product on the field and trying to do that. The other part to me is this continued evolution of, you know, uh, Alexi Lalas trademark super clubs of Atlanta United still spending big money. Uh, LAFC, I think, are going to be back this year. Um, have a first-time head coach and the former teammate Steve Trundle. The Galaxy needing to to be big and good again, and uh, they're still, I think, working towards that. Seattle, Portland, like it's a fun league now. I, I look around these players and. There's good players in, in MLS. I do wonder though, Grant, I'm, I'm curious of how you feel too. Like they continue to spend money, right? And like Almeida, Almada for Atlanta, they bought and paid 16 million. Like at what point does MLS continue spending, spending on that type of player and then not see return on investments and not be able to sell those guys for prices that match up? And then at what point do we start to go out and get a big influx of European players too? Yeah, and especially Atlanta, just because they are the ones who now since Al Marone have spent a lot on a few different players that yeah. haven't totally worked out yet. So Almada's a guy that I'm really curious to see how that goes. Just a couple more questions here. Really appreciate you taking no the problem. time. 
Um, I obviously, I follow you on social media. I can't help but having noticed over the years that you and your wife, Carolyn, have gotten pretty tight with John Legend and Chrissy Teigen. <laughs> What's the story there? How did that happen? So my daughter was in uh, pre-K or kindergarten with uh, their daughter, uh, Luna, who's their, their oldest daughter. And uh, John, I think, or Chrissy Teigen, tweeted a picture of John sitting in the same seat that I had been sitting in outside of a parent-teacher thing, and Kara had like sent it to me, and I wrote back saying, oh, I was just sitting in that seat, and we then realized we're in the same class, and we got to know each other through our kids, and that was three years ago, and our daughters are best friends. We've become really close with them. They've become good friends of ours. Uh, they. See, uh, Chrissy's from Seattle, so I started to get her more into the Sounders. I remember celebrating an MLS Cup with her. They had a party at their house one time. Uh, I brought John and the whole family to a U.S. women's game before they left for the World Cup in 2019. But, like, really just down-to-earth, genuine people that we've connected with well, I think, because we share some commonality in that, you know, I'm not nowhere near to the level of, you know, the, the celebrity that, that obviously they, they have. But... You know, like having been an athlete, I think you experience certain things that, that John has, and, and we talked a lot about that. He's a really intellectual, smart guy. You know, his his background is so interesting when it comes to his schooling and being, uh, you know, uh, essentially a, a child genius and his musical background and the way that he exploded to fame. But, like, just so down-to-earth, like, really nice people, and they've become uh, really good friends of ours. That's really cool. You've gotten to know them. I've met them through... Uh Sports Illustrated, because she was a, a swimsuit model for a number yeah, of years, and then right, yeah. John would come to the swimsuit well, parties and, like, she every She was year. a model, and my wife was a model too, so they have like, yeah. a lot in common. And yeah, it's been a, it's been nice. But like, you find when you have kids that if you have people that your kids get along with, and then you get along with the parents, that's like a big bonus, and you like grab on to those people, and you want to keep building relationships. So. Just wanted to wrap up. Lately, I've noticed you've been trying to get some sort of soccer-related March Madness-style pools going. Yeah. What are you hoping to do with that? I'm not entirely sure. I, I just, I'm a gambler, first of all. I, I don't know if you know my background with poker. Um, Pretty intense back in college, right? So in, in high school, I got into uh, online poker a little bit. And then in, uh, in college, I did it for a year and ended up buying my first house in Houston with it. And it was like this uh, MLS folklore story of like how much did Stu make playing online poker? because I bought a house with it and it was like the after party house where every MLS team came and partied at my uh, my house at the time. But you know, like I love um, pools and fantasy and I just don't feel we have anything for soccer. And I have a friend and uh, a group at, uh, it's a, a place called Run Your Pool and they were like, they saw me tweeting about it. Um, we've been in touch, we've become close and I wanted to start a March Madness one just to start to build a community because I think that like, that's a big could be a big thing for soccer and that like people enjoy doing so like why don't we have pools for world cup why don't we have pools for mls playoffs why don't we have like a general because a people like love to it's a community thing too and they're like free to enter but it's a form of gambling and it kind of gets you going and, and doing that stuff so who like who knows where it's going to go we've got over 100 people in a chat on discord and i keep getting people like asking where it's at and like, I love community. Like, you've built a great community and a following, and you get to connect with all these people, and our commonality is soccer. Like, 
And so why can't we combine those different things? And I don't know, it might be nothing, it might be something really cool and fun. <laughs> Stu Holden is an analyst for Fox Sports, which is broadcasting the U.S. Men's National Team's World Cup qualifier against Panama on March 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern on FS1. Stu, thank you. Grant, great to see you, man. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, all be celebrating March 27th that the U.S. have qualified. So let's get her done. Come on, boys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Stu Holden as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>